I'm going to read now in Malachi and chapter 2 and at verse 17. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, so if you can find Matthew, it's just right before that. Malachi chapter 2 and reading at verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner, and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping this charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. 
They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Amen. May God bless the second reading of his word. Now, it's a fairly lengthy passage we've read there is the second part, but it's really just because it all does go together, and it gives you a sense of what God's full response is to this question that has been brought before the people of God, a question that they are accused of asking God. And in verse 17 of chapter 2, he says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? And the answer is two specific things here. That first of all, by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? Now really, these two, these two questions they're asking God, these two statements they're making, are about the same thing. They're about the reality that here is Israel, in the midst of other nations around them, And as a people, they have become greatly discouraged in their heart. They become greatly discouraged to the point where they look at people around them who are doing evil things and who are getting away with it. And there's no famine in their land and there's no destruction. Instead, people who are wicked, people who are living as they please, people who are doing whatever they want day to day, they seem to have no problems. They seem to have nothing going wrong in their life. And so the conclusion the people of God are drawing is they're saying, well, all these people who are doing evil things, God must consider them good because he's not chastising them. He's not bringing judgment on their land. He's not doing anything terrible to them. So logically, it must mean that God somehow is upholding them, even though they're doing all these wicked things. And the second one, then, by asking this follow-up question to that kind of thinking, if this is true, then is God just? Is God doing what is right in the land? Because God has commanded us. He has told us what is right. He has told us what he loves. He has told us as a God of righteousness, the things that he delights in. He has told us that he hates wickedness, that there's going to come judgment on the land because of all of the wicked acts of all these people in his sight. There is a history of judgment against wickedness that people would look to. You can probably think in your own mind and say, even if you're very young, are there things that I know from the Bible that tell me that God has judged sin in the history of the Bible? 
was a man named Noah and a very great event that took place. And what, it, what was the flood? It was a judgment against sin. It was God showing how he felt when it came to sin, when it came to unrighteousness, when it came to the fact that people were not seeking him. And so when the people of God looked around and said, this isn't happening, and yet wickedness abounds, they were coming, they were pointing the finger at God and saying, is God really just? Does God actually care about this evil? Does God care about sin like he used to? And if he does, then where is he? Where is the God of justice? That's a really big question to ask yourself when you look at the world. But often it's one of the things that we experience daily in very small ways. And I can remember as a child, one of the things that you would probably find yourself, even today, both as children and adults, coming not if not out of your mouth and at least popping into your, into your brain, you'd think, that's not fair. It's a really easy way to experience something especially in very small matters when you're a child and you think, man, my parents just don't get it. How dare they favor that child over me? I got in trouble because I just took that cookie, but they don't know that my brother had snuck too successfully before. I'm only in trouble because I got caught, but what about them? You may even start to plead your case by pointing out how your sibling has actually done worse things than you. And so they deserve to be punished more than you. We face it every day often, too, in our day-to-day lives, where we consider our situation, and we can look at another circumstance and begin to ask the question, is that fair, how that has worked out? Is it fair what I have to face day by day? Is my lot in life and all the things that have happened to me, is it fair? But what does that question usually focus around? When you're asking the question, is it fair? What is it in relation to? Why do you think your situation is unfair? It's usually because you look at other people's situations. It's not that you look at at your specific lot and say, this is unfair in and of itself. You're not saying, if I was the only person in existence and nobody else was on this earth and it was just me, this would be unfair. <coughs> now you're saying, well, this is unfair because this is what I'm going through, but I look over there at that person's life, and they're not going through the same kind of thing. It doesn't seem as hard in their case. It doesn't seem quite as difficult in their life. It doesn't seem quite as hard the things that they are facing. My life seems more difficult. My sins seem to beset me more in a more troubling way. My struggles day to day are somehow bigger and larger and more troubling than those of my brother or my sister, than those of my neighbors, than those people who appear to be outwardly absolutely wicked and yet nothing happens to them. We usually see our fairness in terms of other people. This is a fundamental problem when we're thinking about our relationship to God. Because God isn't looking at any one specific person and saying to you, you are going to be judged in relation to other people. 
You're going to be called to a standard that depends on what other people are doing. And I'm going to come and I'm going to examine your life and I'm going to require of you a way of life that is in relation to someone else. And say, well, look how well your neighbor's doing. Look how faithful they are in listening to me. Look how many times they read the Bible every day. Look how much time they've set aside for prayer. Look how many times they have come and given selflessly. How come you haven't? Why aren't you like your neighbor? Does God ever say that in his word? Why aren't you like other people? What is the standard that you are being called to? When God comes and he says he is dealing as a God of justice, when he is coming to deal as one who comes to people to bring judgment, what is the actual standard? It says, I'm going to come. I'm going to draw near for judgment. But it has to do with who God is. The standard is who God himself is. Who God is as he has revealed himself. We're trying to make sin, or to make sense of sin, to make sense of the plight of the sinner and the plight of those who are trying to serve God. In Psalm 73, there the psalmist struggles with this as well. It's not as though it's something that is just unique in certain circumstances. It's throughout the Bible, this question of what happens to the sinner when it seems like everything is going well. And in Psalm 73, it says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are, and they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness, and their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. What a great image that these are the people being described in that way. They're speaking against heaven as though nothing, and their voice goes out as though it's strutting through the earth. Look at me. Look at the things I can say. Look at how great and grand I am. And who is God? Where is he? He hasn't struck me down yet. Maybe even hear, heard this kind of foolishness from people. Well, God would have struck me down from the things I've said in my life already if he was going to. Because he hasn't, well, I guess I'm okay to keep on the way I am. But here the psalmist is struggling with this. How can this be? That wickedness seems to prosper. How can it be that this is justice? How can it be that God really cares about me and really cares about how much I am struggling to obey him and trying to listen and trying to seek and trying to do what's right if they seem to be going so well and life is so smooth for them? But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned their end. It makes all the difference for the people of God. And there is the psalmist is contemplating this. It's to say, where is their life heading? Where is all of this time right now? What is the end of it? What is the end? 
of your years that you are given here? What's the end that you're aiming toward? What is the end you have in mind? What is the end you wrestle with? What is the end that you set your gifts and your talents to work toward? What is the end of your worship? Of your sense of who God is and his work? Because that is really what is being brought before us in that psalm when it comes to the question of God's justice. is to say, it's not just about what happens here and now. It's not just about this life. It's not just about the things that are here. But it's ultimately about the day of judgment that is to come. In Malachi, this is what is being brought back to their attention as well. It's not as though God has been silent on this matter. His goal is all about revealing that reality, that we have to wrestle with the eternal things, wrestle with our eternal state, and the fact that we have souls that are going to be judged before him. And so he says that this is really, the end of Malachi is dealing with this reality, the day is coming when there will be again a day of judgment. And at the end of chapter 3, he reminds them, then once more you will see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. He said, there will be a day, well, it will be plain, it will be so clear, there will be no question anymore about the justice of God. There will be no question about whether he has done all things right. But a lot of that will be the experience that if you do not seek God and his justice now, then you will be on the receiving end of his justice at a time when it will terrify. In chapter 3, the prophet is saying, Malachi is saying to the people of God, pretty much, you don't even know what you're saying. You don't know what you're asking for. You haven't wrestled and thought about and really come to terms with what it means to say, I want God to be just. I want God to be... I want God to come and to deal with everything right now the way it should be. And Malachi says, The Lord whom you seek, he will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? The problem when it comes to when we think of the question of justice, we are often thinking about it in terms of things that are done against us. Things are not fair on our behalf. Things are not fair because we are on the lower end of the scale. And we think if God was only fair, if people were only fair, then somehow our state would be elevated. When you complain to someone, that's not fair, and you mean it about yourself, are you saying, well, if it was fair, I'd be worse off? No, you're usually complaining, if it was fair, the expectation is, I would be better off. Things would be better. I would have a better job. I would have a better situation. I would have more money. I would have more freedom. I'd have more somehow. We only speak of unfairness, or generally we speak of unfairness about ourselves, when we expect that the result of fairness is that we would receive more. But Malachi comes and he holds out before the people, do you understand? what you're asking for? Have you reckoned with what it means in your life to say, I want to be treated fairly. I want God to be just. I want to see a perfect, holy justice displayed in my life. 
Here Malachi says, think about that. R.C. Sproul had a, a, a great illustration about fairness when he was talking about some of his students and some who had come to him. And, uh, and just in a small way, it applies, you can think this and expand it out to your whole life. But in one instance, he had a student who came to him and wanted an extension on a paper. And so I gave him an extension, even though he wasn't supposed to have said, well, there we go, I'll be gracious to you. You can have an extension, you can finish your paper. And so he finished it. And then a little while later, I think the same student had uh, requested even a second extension, more grace, and received it. But then it came to the point where there was needed, he wanted, several students wanted um, an extension. And because this one had already received some, he said, well, in your case, no, you don't need one this time. But he gave one to another student. And so the student complained to him, well, that's not fair. How come he's getting help and I'm not? Why is he receiving mercy in this case and I'm not? Regardless of the mercy he'd already received. And so R.C. Sproul said, well, to teach him about the reality of being fair, he said, do you want me to be fair? Well, I can be fair. But fairness is going back and saying, those other extensions don't count. So now you fail the paper, and you fail the exam, and you fail the course. That's fair. If you want life to be fair, if you want justice to be done, and you consider everything that you have done in your life, you consider the fullness of who you are, and you think of every single way you have fallen short of the standard that God has set, if you think of every single tiny way that you have sinned, And you stand up before God and say, I want you to treat me fairly. I want you to treat me with the justice I deserve. You cannot possibly know what you're saying. Simply because you cannot possibly call to mind and recollect and think of all the ways that you have sinned. You could not imagine all the ways you've fallen short. And yet God says, I am coming. A day of judgment is coming. As day is coming when that exact thing will happen. When everyone will have to give an account of every word and every thought and every intent of your heart, of everything that your whole life encompasses. And the truth is, justice will be done. But then as Malachi has been sent to to speak to the people of God, Justice is going to be accomplished in more than one way. Justice will be accomplished, but the question is, who is going to pay? On who will the burden of that justice fall? In one case, it's going to be that those who stand up in their own strength, who stand before God and who say, well, it's just me here. And that day is coming burning like an oven when the arrogant and the evildoers will be stubble. When those whose tongues have strutted through the earth, who have spoken all these things against heaven and said, where is God? Where is his justice? Where is his faithfulness? Where is his love and mercy? Does God really care? I can obviously live however I want and it doesn't matter what God has said. His word doesn't matter. All he has revealed, it doesn't matter because there's no Recompense. There's nothing happening to me. I'm not being struck down. I'm not facing any hardship. In fact, things seem to go better than all those foolish people over there trying so hard to keep God's law, trying so hard to serve him faithfully. They have way more trouble than I do. 
I'm just going to keep doing my own thing and what's God going to do about it? Nothing. And God says, no, the day is coming when suddenly everything about your life will be laid bare and justice will be done. But the great mercy, the great grace of God is that we are able to wrestle with these things now, before the day comes. To think about that reality and to put in perspective and to say, what is my life? What are all of these things, that all of these sins, all of these ways I have fallen short, all of the ways in which even I come to the law of God and I wrestle with the fact that I, I'm not keeping this standard, I'm not achieving all these things. How can I deal with these things? And here God says, I'm sending my messenger. He's going to prepare the way. And he's going to come. He's going to sit as a refiner. But what is the end of his work? What is the end of what he is doing? What is the end that he is aiming toward? If God came and it was just pure justice based on who we are and what we've done, the end result is we'd all be swept away. It would just be like the days of Noah where the whole earth would be swept away. But here he says, I'm coming and the end is I will purify the sons of Levi. I will refine them like gold and silver. They will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. See, God was speaking to the people of God who knew him. He was writing to them through Malachi to a people, not who were far off, who didn't understand him, but who had seen grace in a way that was above and beyond. They were at this time in history a people who had come out of Egypt. They were a great nation who were, went down, became a great nation in Egypt, were brought out through God's mighty hand in the Exodus, were brought into the promised land where they had a land flowing with milk and honey, with buildings they hadn't built, with fields they hadn't planted, full of good things to harvest and to see God's goodness. They had been brought as a nation to the place where the glory of Solomon's temple was on display, where among all the nations of the world, Israel was so amazing and beautiful that other nations would send their leaders. They would come and inquire and say, what is this nation that's so blessed? What is this nation where there is so much glory, so much wealth, so much provision, where there is so much wisdom in the leader who God has set over them? It was an amazing and beautiful picture. Israel had a pinnacle of representing the glory of God on earth. Can you imagine what that would be like to be in a place where it said everyone had Time. They could go home, they could sit under their fig tree, they could relax in the produce of the work that came, or, or, or that came from the work of their hands, where silver was so commonplace they would throw it in the streets like nothing. Because there was so much provision for everyone. For everyone stood in awe of the king because he of his wisdom and justice. And you could go to the one who was set over you and who ruled to you, and you you were fully confident that when I come before, when I bring my complaint, when he deals with a matter, he's going to deal with it in a way that's good, that's wise, that's righteous. We hunger for these things, even in this world. Why do we complain about the leaders we have? 
doesn't matter what level they're at. If someone's in authority, there's going to be some complaints going on. Why do we complain? Because we hunger for justice. Because we hunger for righteousness. Because we hunger for authority being used in a way that we are fully confident that we can go and say, this person is going to listen and do what's right. This person is going to want to do what's right. This person is going to delight in doing what's good. There will be justice. We hunger for it. We want that. We're created for that. Because we're created to be in that relationship with God where that is what we know from Him. As God's people, that's what you know from God. Because that is who He is. Perfect righteousness. Perfect justice. A God who deals with His people perfectly in every circumstance and situation. And it's alongside that justice. Malachi, in the earlier parts of Malachi, is Again, encouraging the people of God by reminding them how God has shown this. They knew the glory of Solomon, of the temple, of God's dwelling presence, of provision in a way they had never known it before, where they stood out among all the nations of the world. And ever since then, they have known decline because of their sin. They were a people who knew God's rebuke because they would not listen. A people who were called off and taken away into exile. The walls of Jerusalem were broken down. The temple was fallen to the ground. And everything external that would have proven to them God's goodness. In a physical way. To them it had been broken down. It was no longer there. They were taken from the land. They were in exile to their enemies. They were in a place where they would think, how can God love us if he would do this to us? And yet even there, it was the rebuke of a God who was saying, turn back to me. He wasn't trying to cut them off and destroy them. Instead, he was saying, here's a real consequence of your sin, so you will cry out to me. So you'll understand that sin matters. So you'll understand that there is judgment coming, and you will seek me while you can. And then in his grace, he had brought them back out of exile. He had caused the nation that had taken them into exile to actually pay the money to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And at this point in their history, they have seen the temple rebuilt. Although smaller, we're told the people who knew the glory of Solomon's temple wept because it seemed so much less. And they have had God's prophets coming. The Jerusalem's walls have been rebuilt. As a people, they have been given great hope that although they were chastised, They're being established again as God's people. And God has sent Malachi to say, I have loved you. I am faithful in loving you. I am faithful in having before you this place of access where you have been able to come and offer animals in place of your sin. Where I have made it possible a way of justice for you. At every time you sinned and you deserve to die, Every time you fell short and you deserve to be wiped out for your sin, you could offer an animal and I would accept it. You have had this before you. And even though you're in the midst of all these nations that are sinning so much and it seems like judgment is not coming, God says, remember, you know me. You have the way of access. You have had 
the prophets. You have had the sacrificial system. You have had the evidence in my love and that I have carried you this far. I have provided for you. I have brought you back. Again, Jerusalem has risen. The temple has risen. I have provided access to me again. Now for us to say, where is the God of justice? And come back and say, what do we have in our lives? God's justice is poured out either on us on the day of judgment. Or we look to the one who he has provided. Who comes as the fulfillment of that sacrificial system. When Jesus came and gave himself. He was fulfilling God's justice. He was coming in such a way that God would be able to say. Here is someone who like in Malachi's day. Would fall short and yet could come and offer an animal and say. God has accepted it in my place because he's gracious. When Jesus came and offered himself, God accepted Jesus in our place because he's gracious. It's how perfect justice is done, how all of our sin is paid for. And that Jesus came to fulfill that sacrificial system as the culmination of it. And even all of these sacrifices... That they were offered then, they were all looking forward to the fact that Jesus was the one who ultimately would bear all the sins of his people. It's an amazing thing to think of justice. If you even contemplate a little bit your life and go back and with the faulty and sloppy memories we have, it doesn't take long to amass this pretty decent list of things where you would say, if I had to receive justice for all these things, Woe am I. Like it just we are going to be totally consumed and destroyed by what we deserve if it's not already paid for. And this is what Jesus came to do. This is what Jesus accomplished in going to the cross, to offer himself as a sacrifice that would be accepted, that God would be perfectly just, that God's people would be able to say, We know with a confidence that God alone can give us. That all that we deserve is paid for. That all that should be poured upon us has been poured upon Jesus. Isaiah 53 looked forward to this in a way that is so beautifully put. It says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds... We are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The the effect that people thought in that day, they thought of Jesus going to the cross and being put to death. And it sums up here the way in which the, the, the sinful heart thinks. 
We esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. As though God's justice was being done because there was Jesus being put to death. There was Obviously he must have done something wrong. Look how God had treated him. Look at the sorrow he suffered. Look at how he was shamed. Look at how he was treated in his earthly ministry. And finally put to death on the cross. Surely this man must have been a great sinner to be treated that way. And to bear that much injustice. But here in Isaiah it says, those who understand when by the Spirit works in your heart, be able to understand and rejoice in the fact that God's justice was being accomplished in an amazing way. That he, yes, deserved to be put to death, but not because of anything he did or lacked or any way that he fell short. Because you fell short because you have sinned because you fall short all the time and will continue to do so here Isaiah says he was crushed for our transgressions our iniquities with his wounds we are healed when we think of injustice at times can think like the disciples they made the same mistake the man born blind in John chapter 9 and they are passing by and they see it and the disciples ask Jesus rabbi who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind and Jesus answered it was not that this man sinned or his parents but that the works of God might be displayed in him that's an interesting thing to think about. It's what really struck me at one point when I was going through this is what it would feel like to be the people who knew this man well when Jesus said that. If that was the only information you had, and here is a person who's been blind since birth, who has struggled with this situation, who has been going through all that life would have meant as a blind person back in his day and age and in his context, all that he would struggle he would have faced, and someone tells you it's nobody's fault that he was born blind. You think, well, that's really unfair how come this man was born blind and yet no one was at fault for it in job we're given other information around it. you say why did job suffer why did job face all the things he did was it job's fault and we're told in that case that wasn't job's fault rather satan was given permission to test him to try his faith but what's wonderful about this answer here in John, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's an amazing thing to consider about being sinners, of people who fall short, of people who are marred and who are broken in so many ways. And God said, this man has been blind for all these years, has struggled in this situation, so that the works of God, so that the glory of God might be written in his life, so that he would display the beauty of my love and my grace, and my willingness and power to save. Here is someone who has 
been set, whose life, although it has appeared to be so full of suffering and difficulty, and that that would be the end has now been shown that it has been full of these things that have been hard to bear. And yes, he has suffered. And yes, there has been trial. And yes, there has been so much difficulty. And yet his end has been all this time that God would be glorified. That he would be given his sight. And there would be a great triumph of God's might and power displayed in and through him. Malachi says... The one is coming. The Lord is coming. He is suddenly coming. And who can endure? Who can stand? But the end of those who seek him. The end of those who trust in what he has provided. They will bring an offering that will be pleasing to the Lord. They will be those who are able to rejoice in the Lord. As it was in the days of old and as in former years. That's the wonder of what it is to be a sinner saved by grace. To say, although there is so much sin, you will never sin in a way that will shock God. You will never sin in a way that will catch him off guard. You will never sin in a way that he will suddenly be outside the realms of justice. You will never sin in a way that he cannot say, return to me, come to me, look to my son. I am a God of justice. And the debt has been paid. Trust in my son. And you will be saved. Trust in my son. And you will be cleansed. Repent and turn to me. And I will hear and give you life. And that's not just good news if you don't trust in Jesus at this point. That's the good news for your whole life as a Christian. Turn to God. Look to Jesus. Rest in him. And even in the midst of suffering, remember that God's glory and grace can be written on your life in such a wonderful and amazing way because he has saved and sustained and carried you. And he continues and will continue to carry you to the end because he loves you and cares for you. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you reveal to us truth. That you reveal to us the way of salvation. And in through your Son, whom you have given. And Father, we thank you that as we face the reality of life here in a broken and sinful world. As we face the reality of our own hearts and the sin that remains, that we fight against, and the deceitfulness of it. Father, we know that we need your constant care, your constant love, to be reminded again and again of your faithfulness, of your goodness, your grace and mercy and justice. Father, help us to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, to look to you as a Father who is good and working out what is good in our life. May we rejoice that the end of all your mighty works is to gather to yourself a people who have been redeemed and who will be with you forever. And we pray that that would be our place now, seeking you, seeking the Lord Jesus, and resting in his perfect and finished work. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.